We've come to our gospel reading today, which highlights the Sabbath again. This is the third time Jesus has been invited by the Pharisees for a meal. And the previous two didn't go so well. They were a little stressful. This one seems to be no different. And a commentary that um, we reflected on earlier this week with the middle school kids, they describe it as this. This is the third time that Jesus agrees to come to dinner at a Pharisee's house. In episode one, which is in the seventh chapter, Simon the host refuses common courtesies to Jesus. He doesn't give him a kiss of greeting. He doesn't give him an anointing. He doesn't have water to wash his feet. The episode ends with a woman of the city serving as a substitute host, the irony being that it's the sinner who extends hospitality. That's the first episode in Luke's gospel. The second episode in chapter 11 begins with the Pharisee host being surprised that Jesus has not been immersed or even washed his hands before arriving. And even though the Pharisee doesn't say anything, Jesus knows what he's thinking. Jesus gives a dressing down to this man, his friends and associates. And as Jesus left the house, the Pharisees and scribes, quote, began to act with hostility and to pester him about many things, end quote, hoping to catch him with his own words. Clearly, there is tension here, coming from both directions. On top of that, there are others among the Pharisees who come to inform Jesus about Herod's plot to put him to death. You can read this in the 13th chapter, and to urge him to leave Galilee. And so why, under these current circumstances, and after two disastrous meals, are the Pharisees still inviting Jesus to dinner? Jesus called them, quote, unmarked graves, end quote, and labeled them as murderers of the prophets. Jesus charges some of the Pharisees with hypocrisy, and they charge him with multiple breaches of the Torah. Clearly, there are differences in interpretation. All of them have consequences. And so here we come to episode three. Interestingly enough, there's a portion of the gospel that's left out. You might have noticed we went from verse one to verse seven. The the verses that are in the middle there read as this. On one occasion when Jesus was going to the house of a leader of the Pharisees to eat a meal on the Sabbath, they were watching him closely. Just then, in front of him, there was a man who had dropsy. And Jesus asked the lawyers and Pharisees, is it lawful to cure people on the Sabbath or not? But they were silent. So Jesus took the man and healed him and sent him away. Then he said to all of the people at the meal, if one of you has a child or an ox that has fallen into a well, will you not immediately pull it out on a Sabbath day? And they could not reply to this. Jesus then launches into these two teachings that we read this morning. The silence in the room is deafening, isn't it? Here it is that this man who is sick comes into the space and it looks like somebody's trying to start an argument. There is no answer to Jesus' questions, and thus he takes it as an opportunity to teach. This passage we worked with this week, the middle schoolers and I, we have 23 people in our database 
between sixth, seventh, and eighth grades. Eight of them came together for a couple of hours earlier this week after VBS, several of them you saw up here. And we um, began to reflect on this passage. Alison Zuckert, thankfully, was my second adult, and she is such a gifted person with young people. We did various things that invited the kids to make connections with each other. One of the primary goals was for them to know each other's names and to hear each other's voices. They were given an opportunity to reflect on this passage of scripture, and they picked up on the value that's highlighted here of worth. What does it mean to be worthy? What is Jesus teaching us about worth? And several of them agreed to share their reflections on video. So we're gonna share those with you now. In this story, and after reading it, you can clearly see a clear thing. That, that the people who need it should be invited first, and not those who already have necessities. Do not expect to get some sort of value when you invite someone. Instead, you should expect to get gratitude. You do not invite someone with the thought of being repaid. You invite someone with the kindness out of your heart. I think the story means that if you do things just to repay you, people won't value you. Never judge someone by their books. The story basically summarizes how you should um, always invite people who are lower than you because you'll never have self-worth if you know you're doing something only for yourself. Aren't we blessed to hear from them? A few of them are here, and several of them are going to watch this video later, so I hope they heard our gratitude. For many of us, we don't get to hear from middle schoolers with any regularity, right? The kind of ways that they work in the world, the thoughts that come to their heads, we need their voices in our midst. Through listening to them, we then begin to reflect again on these things that we have been reflecting on for years and years and years. And so I'm grateful to each of these young people for sharing with us their thoughts. Indeed, the issue of worth is a pivotal piece in this gospel lesson. And Jesus brings out the point that we can often misunderstand our value, both positively and negatively. When we think about ourselves according to our achievements or others according to their achievements, we often get it wrong. This is something we know deeply. We have been in situations where we thought the criteria for greatness was this, only to find out that it was that. And indeed, we can misunderstand even our own achievements. We can feel really great about ourselves, what we've done, leaving out some of the things that maybe assisted us that we have disregarded or didn't even know. This is something that our society is waking up to, an awareness of the ways in which inequalities are built in, and we seem to not exhaust ourselves with this conversation because it is so expansive. And with each conversation and each topic, we find ourselves going into other areas as well, whether it be systemic racism, whether it be economics, whether it be education, these are just a handful of things where we begin to see, oh my goodness, some of how we got here is because of things 
that are outside of us, beyond our control, both known and unknown. This was no different back then. This was the way it was back then, too. And this is part of Jesus' point to the Pharisees, to those who are seated there around the table. He is highlighting for them that they don't really know how to evaluate their situation in life or the situation of others, and they'll often get it wrong. To think about this on a school-age level, perhaps students might enter a room and think that they're to be organized according to their GPA, and so they can remember what theirs is, and they look around and they say, I'm in this portion of the room because this is my number. And what if the teacher comes in and says, I really evaluate people according to their sports ability. All of a sudden, it's mixed up. Someone who thought that they were the best now becomes the least, and vice versa. We are most honest with ourselves when we realize that we all do this. And it is a default way among us. In God's eyes, what really matters is our shared humanity. And that's what God wants to bring us back to time and again, Jesus making that point in this story. That our evaluative measure is our ability to love our neighbor in a demonstrable way. Our humanity is what really matters. And how we recognize the humanity of another is what really matters. The ability to relate to one another as fellow children of God, each of us created unbeknownst to the other out of the infinite love of God. The monumental love of God, as the young people sang, bigger than our wildest dreams, that's what's brought each of us to this place. And where else is that value practiced than in the church? There is nowhere in the world that has that commitment to the extent that the church has to recognize one another as beloved children of God. So we come together week in and week out to remember ourselves. We are not our to-do list. We are not our failures. We are not what people think we are. We are children of God, and it is through that that we find our place in this world, interacting and living with one another. We will never get it perfect, and so it is that we come together to remind one another that that is not the ultimate goal. The goal is to love one another. This is what we want to teach our young people. This is what our young people remind us we're not very good at teaching. So we're called together on an equal playing field, entering into the awareness that we are all beloved children of God. That's the first part when Jesus is talking to the guests. But then he turns and he talks to the host. And he says, when you invite people, don't invite all of the usual folks, the folks that invite you. But remember the poor and the lame and the crippled and the blind. Now, when people are seated at table, there are places of um, the host always considers where people are seated. Like any good dinner party, you try to put people next to each other that they'll have a good time, that the conversation will flow, that people will leave saying, thank you, this was lovely, this was so fantastic. It's always been that way. And so Jesus speaks to the host and says, when you invite guests, this is how you should seat them. This is how you should, this is who you should invite. But I'm thinking then, what happens to the conversation at the table? If you're with people different than yourselves, then how easily does the conversation flow? 
Do you know how to have a conversation with people who are outside of your regular connections? Would you know what to talk about with them or even ask them about? When we acted this out, the middle schoolers and I and Allison um, on Wednesday, people were willing, you know, they knew how to be they knew how to be crippled, they could pretend to be crippled, they could pretend to be lame, they could pretend to be blind. And I said, who wants to pretend to be poor? How would I know that you're poor? And they were struck, you know, with a question, yeah, how does, how do you do that one? I'm remem remembering a time when I was a chaplain in, on the Lower East Side one summer during seminary, and I was in charge of visiting all the people that were on the step-down unit of the heart, open heart um, surgery. So after they finished their surgery, they would come to this place for three or four days to gain their strength and then to be released. And I was to visit them, and HIPAA laws preclude you from really knowing anything about people. You just enter the room and greet them and see if they want to talk. And there was this one guy that I went to his room once, twice, and it was always the same circumstance. The lights were off, and he was curled on his side in a fetal position. And I never did see any people coming in and out of there. And I said to the nurse after a couple of times of this, can you tell me anything about this guy and what I'm seeing here? And she said, oh, he's homeless. And that's when it dawned on me what I was seeing. Here's someone who's learned to live without electricity. Here's someone who has learned to get rest on a hard surface. Your side is usually a good way to do that whether it be a park bench or the sidewalk. How is it that we know the needs of those around us? How is it that we recognize the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind? Do we know enough about their stories to know even to invite them in, to consider what it is that they care about, what's on their minds? Would they know themselves to be welcome in any one of our presence? Are there things that we do or don't do that make them feel unwelcome? These are questions for each of us to consider. In the news this past week on the issue of banned books, I heard one librarian speak about the importance of books, even those which make us uncomfortable or challenge societal situations and structures. And the librarian said, books are one of the primary ways that we learn empathy, by reading. Thinking about us grown-ups, I bring to you the question, what have you read lately? Are you reading familiar voices? Do you read people who see the world as you do? Do you read things that bring you comfort and affirmation? How many of you, and you don't have to do a show of hands, have engaged in an author that's different than you in some significant way, who centers the story of another that you say, I don't even, this just really doesn't resonate with me. By entering into the text, we begin to become empathetic to the experience of another. It's a very safe place to work through some of our discomfort and to become tuned to the needs and priorities of another. I definitely know the feeling of hesitancy or resistance or just um, neglect of doing something like that. We can often say, I just, it doesn't really, I, I don't get it though. I don't, I'm just going to move on from this news story because it doesn't really relate to me. Jesus is inviting us to consider who it is that we might need to know.
Paul makes the same point in his letter to the Hebrews. Consider the prison, those in prison, as if you yourself were in prison. Wouldn't you remember that like every single day? I would. Or the tortured as if you yourself were tortured. Wouldn't you remember that? Maybe the prison, those imprisoned or those tortured aren't the people that you remember, but maybe there's another demographic that you're tuned to and keenly interested in. Let the Spirit lead you outside of your comfort zone into a place of considering the issues of another. Paul is urging the Hebrew people to do this because it is through that that we begin to understand and experience the fullness of God, God's presence with them, even as God is with us. How it is that God shows up for us in our very realities of life. We'll never know everybody, but if we can become comfortable with coming outside of our comfort, then we will discover the peace of God which passes all understanding. I think I mentioned last week Springtide Research, which has been doing um, a lot of research on Gen Z. This is people between the ages of 13 and 25. And um, I have been enjoying their discoveries. As much as it shouldn't be rocket science, it kind of feels like rocket science all at the same time. You know what I mean? One of the recent things that they have published is the eight values of, the, of Gen Z. And I, I, put a, I bought the little book here, and it's actually a lot online too, videos to watch and that sort of thing. One of them is welcoming. Now that is a beautiful value that this age group wants and values, they value welcoming. What the research reveals is it means two different things. One is it means a friendly environment where people greet them by name and recognize them and engage them in conversation. But the other dimension of welcoming that they value is a place that welcomes them in and lets them help shape the organization or the institution. This is a challenge even for the church. How would young people know that they're welcomed into this space? What clue would we give them that we're glad they're here? How do we adjust things so that they can feel safe and a part of it all? It's not that we lay down everything important, just so they can feel prioritized. That's actually not what they're looking for, but instead for a relationship. And so we are wanting to get better at this as a community. They danced for us up here. Maybe we should think about dancing again in church. It'll be our turn next time. I believe there should be more dancing in church. We're also going to have an interactive inflatable at Nutmeg and Neighbors. If we want our young people to be there, do they know that? Well, hopefully they will. We've asked them to give a vote for which one they would like to have. These are the ways, so simple and yet intentional, that we can do this together. And your engagement with one another, even across the divides here, can make a difference. Our gospel lesson is calling us into community beyond what is familiar. And we can do that with one another, even in this space. I encourage you, when you leave worship here today, to stick around for a few minutes during coffee hour if you can. Actually, it's lemonade. And go up to someone who maybe you haven't seen in a while or whose face you've seen but you can't quite remember their name. Introduce yourself again and just say, tell me something about your summer. It's in getting to know each other's voices, to be in the same space that we become 
humanized to one another. We become in relationship to one another, and we start to see God reflected in one another. This is ultimately what God wants because this is what God does at the communion rail, at the communion table. God invites all people to come there. So let us hear these powerful words of the gospel for two things. One is to remember our humanity first and foremost and the humanity of others and let God sort us all out. And two, for us to tune our ears and our heart to those that are beyond our margins so that we might create a welcoming table that God has already set for them and us. Amen.